share information in ways that are across greater... As we become an algorithmically run society and influence... So, you know, one of, one of the big things about behavioral economics... Because actually women get the most extreme forms of... of so China is a country that... Manufacturing jobs, the optimizations... Can Whenever you see something that you never see... I think there's only a few... Numbers. I feel like my whole career has been a journey. Live from the company amphitheater overlooking Grand Central Station... I'm Nick Weinberg, and welcome to Company Conversations. Here, we share stories from the tech pioneers, best-selling authors, and world leaders who come through our doors to open up about their journeys, breakthroughs, and latest work. Each month, we broadcast a new conversation from the archive of our in-person series, recorded right here in the heart of Manhattan. These in-depth, nuanced, and personal conversations offer new perspectives that help us understand the modern world and our place within it. From our hard drive to your headphones, This is Company Conversations. So let's just start with a basic question, actually. Um, Scientists everywhere are talking about CRISPR. It's really such an important discovery and a buzzy topic. Um, We've got a tech audience here today, but not necessarily a biotech audience. So maybe you can just tell us in the simplest possible terms, what is CRISPR? Well, it's very simple to describe because bacteria, who are no smarter than we are, have been doing it for a billion years, which is they have in their system the ability to recognize viruses that attack them. They take a mugshot, a tiny snippet of the genetic material of that virus, and they store it in their own genetic code, the bacteria do. So if you sequence the uh, DNA of a bacteria, you'll see these clustered, repeated, interspaced uh, sequences known as CRISPRs. And that's what they do. They remember viruses that have attacked. Well, you can imagine this is pretty darn important uh, in this day and age to say, okay, how did bacteria do that? But what Jennifer Doudna, who's the hero of the book, and her scientific partner, Emmanuel Charpentier, and her competitor, Fong Zhang at the MIT Broad Institute, at George Church at Harvard, what they all do is say, well, hey, if bacteria can use that to cut DNA at a specific spot, we could repurpose that and make it a tool to edit our own genes. So in 2012 and 2013, they turned CRISPR into a tool. If you have a piece of genetic code and, you know, a human gene, uh, you can say, let's edit it. Let's change it. And so you can see how useful that would be to medicine and also why it's a great opportunity as well as challenge for our species. Mm-hmm. So CRISPR is kind of like a, a pair of, you know, uh, like an exacto blade or some, some scissors. You can really be extremely directed in a way we've never been able to, um, uh, to do in, in gene editing, really editing the code of life. Is that, what, is that exactly. how we should think about it? And what you use is a piece of RNA as a guide. That's the way bacteria do it. That's the way we do it. And, you know, you're a doctor. Half the people here listening, you know, are entrepreneurs who know how to code or at least hire coders. It's uh, easy to code a molecule just like it is a microchip. So you code that piece of RNA and I say, "I I want you to go here. I want you to cut that gene. Or in the case of our Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, Instead of being a guide for a pair of scissors, it's a messenger for creating a protein. RNA can do that as well. It can be messenger RNA. 
And it says, all right, it tells that part of our cell where we make proteins. Here's the code I got. I want you to make a protein, including one that, say, looks like the spike protein on the top of a coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So the hero of my book is Jennifer Dowden and her colleagues. But the other hero is the molecule of the year, which is RNA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quite certainly the molecule of, of the year. You know, I think the, the subtitle of your book uh, references the the, the nothing short of the future of the human race really hangs in the balance here. I think some people who, who pick up the book might have their eyes pop out of their head when they when they when they see that. I mean, we're talking about essentially a pair of scissors and some gene editing tools. So why is it that the future of the human race is so much impacted by this important discovery? Well, after a few million years, one species on this planet has developed the ability and the talent and the temerity to say, let's hack evolution. Let's not just have it happen you know, randomly the way evolution does. Let's hack our own genetic code. And that species happens to be us. Hmm. So we can, uh, in the future, our children and our children's children will have the opportunity and the dilemma of saying, all right, we not only can read the code of life, you know, read our DNA, but we can rewrite it. And that's a change. When she wins, when Jennifer Doudna wins the Nobel Prize with Emmanuel Scharpenchay, the Swedish Academy, which is not often given to overstatement, says this brings science into a whole new epoch. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like CRISPR has the potential to change, well, I mean, everything. Um, when, when, when does it happen? I mean, is this the next 10 years, the next 50 years? Is it longer than that? Yeah, it's minus two years ago or minus a year ago, because <laughs> just over two years ago, a Chinese scientist edited the embryos of unborn girls. They turned out to be two twin girls in China. And she edited them so they did not have the gene that produces the receptor for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. So we've already done inheritable genetic editing and created what's called designer babies. Mm -hmm. Now, that was a rogue experiment. He's under house arrest now, mm -hmm. but in a more, uh, you know, experiment that was uh, celebrated more. About four months ago, Victoria Gray, a woman in Mississippi at a Nashville hospital, they used CRISPR because she has sickle cell anemia. Mm -hmm. And they edited her stem cells of her blood so that now she's producing normal blood cells instead of stem cells. So like a lot of good science fiction, a lot, part of it has already come true. So we're not talking about now if we're going to talk about wanting to edit the human species to add IQ points or to, you know, add better memory or to change our personality. You know, that's a decade or two or longer away. But if we want to do simple genetic edits, we can do them now. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as I mentioned, you know, I'm a physician myself and some of the things like sickle cell anemia truly pernicious and tractable diseases, the idea that we have the chance to not only improve them, but eliminate them is, is truly tantalizing. Um, so the possibilities certainly seem limitless. And, and you brought up a whole bunch of things that 
about the ethics. And we definitely want to get to that later in the conversation. But I wanted to circle back to um, the star of your book uh, for a moment, um, <clears throat> Jennifer Doudna, Nobel Prize winning Jennifer Doudna. Um, some people in the audience, though, may not be familiar with her. So who is she and and why did you choose to tell the story of CRISPR uh, from her perspective? Well, I wanted a central character who understood not only the science, but the ethics and understood the humanities. Everybody I've written about from Steve Jobs to Leonardo da Vinci sort of understands both the humanities and the sciences because they realize they're connected. And so about six or seven years ago, I was thinking, you know, I've written books about the first great innovation revolution of modern times, which was based on the atom. The revolution in physics that starts around 1900 when Einstein starts writing his papers. And it gives us everything from the atom bomb to space travel and to semiconductors and things like that. The next revolution is the information technology revolution, which most people on this uh, call and uh, most people listening in, they're a part of. It's the entrepreneur uh, engine of uh, this revolution is the microchip. And when you connect the microchip to computers, to the internet, you get a digital revolution. Well, the third great revolution, the one that's starting now, begins, you know, you could say in the year 2000 when we sequence the human gene, when the Human Genome Project finishes. And that's really cool. You know, we know every bit of the human genome, but it didn't help too much. You know, you could look at it, but you couldn't rewrite it. And what Jennifer Doudna did, along with Emmanuel Charpentier, with whom she won the Nobel Prize, is take this old system that bacteria have been using for a billion or so years and say, not only can we read the human genome, but let's be able to rewrite the human genome. So to me, that's the big revolution we're in now. And people who are the entrepreneurs on this meeting and uh, who have been dealing with you know, coding microchips you're going to see a lot more people are going to connect the digital revolution to the life sciences revolution. That's what your company does. That's what you do. That's the ability to say the life sciences are going to connect to the entrepreneurial revolution and the digital revolution. And for me, the best way to do a journey of discovery, to tell a tale, is through a great central character. And Jennifer, you don't get any better than that. You know, she was... She was born in Hawaii, felt like an outsider because she was in a small town with all uh, kids were Polynesian uh, descent. And she was from the mainland and tall and lanky and blonde. And uh, she reads the double helix. She says she wants to become a scientist or guidance counsel says girls don't become scientists. And that makes her persist. And then she discovers the structures of RNAs that allow them to replicate themselves. And this is a very big discovery because it tells you how did life begin on this planet? That's one of those big questions. Well, it probably began with RNA, just in this sort of primordial stew we have. RNA, you know, a bunch of molecules come together and they learn how to replicate themselves. Well, that leads her to the gene editing tool, which uses RNA as a guide. And nowadays it's helps us with messenger RNA, which teaches us how to make vaccines. It's truly an and truly impressive story. And um, it took an expert like her to really uh, 
coalesce this huge group of people doing so many different things. And, and that's actually one of the one of the things that struck me the most about this book is that a lot like what you've chronicled in other books, like the, the innovator, actually, I think I have it right over here somewhere, uh, the innovators about how it's really a, a global cast of characters that uh, make iterative change and build upon each other's discoveries. Same thing happened here with, with, with CRISPR. Um, and so while Doudna is truly one of the leaders of the pack and, and the central character of your story, there were so many other people from microbiologists to yogurt scientists to, uh, to Doudna herself. So what does the story of CRISPR tell us about just how innovation really works? Well, first of all, it tells us that it's something you already know. It's always a mix of competition and cooperation. I mean, Jennifer Doudna is competitive. And she's in a race with some of the guys at MIT and Harvard to figure out how do we really make this a tool? They're still battling over the patents. But when it came to turning this tool and their discoveries into something we could use in the fight against COVID, they start creating detection tests, ways to cure COVID using uh, RNA-guided uh, scissors, as we call them. And they're cooperative. They, they put the things in the public domain. Creativity is a team sport. Any company you've got hanging around, you know that innovation is a collaborative effort. And so that's what this book is all about, knowing when to compete and when to collaborate, and also knowing how to connect the sciences to the humanities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up what also happened in, in this moment that we're living in right now, this COVID-19 pandemic. And I think you need to look no further than this pandemic to see the true power of global scientific cooperation, that, that we have a highly effective set of vaccines in less than a year is a direct uh, reflection of this global um cooperation, but at the same time, competition was such a central part of the story of CRISPR, and perhaps more than I've seen in other areas. So I guess I wonder, from your perspective as a, as a true chronicler of, the, the, of innovation and how it comes about, <clears throat> do you view um, the future of how we go about innovation more the, the COVID model or the CRISPR model, the collaborative or the, or the competitive Well, I do think you have to weave it together, but you can take the invention that started the uh, digital revolution, the one that most of you all deal with every day, and that's the microchip. Great competition between Bob Noyce, the wonderful guy, and his partner Gordon Moore, known for Moore's Law. They're inventing it at Intel. Likewise, Jack Kilby is doing the same thing at Texas Instruments. They're racing like crazy, and they get into a patent battle. But eventually... They learn a real maxim of business, which is let's quit fighting over divvying up the proceeds until you finish robbing the stagecoach. And they call each other, they shake hands, they cross license their patents. And that's the way it should work. You know, you should be able to let the competition spur you on, but you also got to keep your eye on the ball. Absolutely. Actually, that that story about uh, Gilby and Noyce, uh, which you uh, told in your book, I think highlighted for me, at least, something um, that I don't know that we've yet seen in the CRISPR battle, which has taken a hyper-competitive turn. And I think even some of the the key players, this thing went to the Supreme Court. It's a massive patent battle all around the world, not just here in the U.S. Um, 
And some of the key players were even lamenting the, the, the competitiveness. So do you think that this competitiveness that we're seeing, at least in the CRISPR world, is potentially cheating humanity out of the, um, out of the full benefits of what CRISPR can deliver to us? No, I think right now we're beginning to see, uh, especially coming out of the coronavirus crisis, the ability to share intellectual property. But I'm somebody, you know, I fight with some of my daughter's uh, friends or whatever. I believe in intellectual property. I believe that if you create a research lab or you spend six, 10 years or so creating an amazing tool, whether it's done digitally or genetically or whatever, you should have the right to the intellectual property. It's in the Constitution. And it says to promote the useful arts and invention. So I think that's fine. I do think that every now and then, and I've tried to do this with the people who are involved in the CRISPR battles, every now and then it's okay to take the lawyers out of the room for a second and say, all right, how can we resolve this? I suspect that's going to happen with CRISPR. Certainly you saw Joe Biden, the president, do a really good job bringing Merck and Johnson & Johnson into the room together so that those two competitors could uh, Mm -hmm. collaborate on making uh, the vaccine. So I think in our society at the moment, we've become very polarized. We've made everything into an, a winner-take-all competition. And maybe, you know, whether it be Joe Biden or some of the people now fighting the coronavirus, maybe we have to be reminded that there's a larger purpose as well, so we should cooperate more. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's so right. And, and- you know, it's an interesting interplay between competition, collaboration, and commercialization, and that tension is is really necessary, I think, uh, to, to drive things forward. And it's really been at least part of the magic of the American experiment, and, and I think uh, has driven so much of the benefit we've seen over the last uh, century plus. Um, so. I'll just uh, take a pause here for a moment to encourage our audience to start thinking up some questions. Uh, I have at least 100 more, but I want to make sure you get a chance to uh, to, to ask Walter some questions. Um, so just drop them in the Q&A box um, and we'll, we'll get to them uh, and pepper them throughout. Um, so... I, I want to take a, a little bit of a, of a turn here um, and come back to a topic that I, I said we'd come back to, which is the ethics. It's really not possible to talk about CRISPR without talking about the ethical quandaries that it invites. Um, we now, as you said, have the power to edit the code of life. Um, so are disease-free designer baby superhumans the wave of the future? And where are the battle lines being drawn here? How, you know, how far do we go? I think there's one very clear line we should begin with, which is when I talked about uh, Victoria Gray, for example, being cured of sickle cell down in Mississippi. You know, she's a living patient. She gave her consent and the edits were done there. There's another person in my book, David Sanchez, 17 year old kid, and he's got sickle cell and he's being treated. And the doctors tell him, You know, now with CRISPR, we may be able to make it so that when you have children, the gene that causes the mutation that causes sickle cell will be edited out. And the kids, your kids and all their descendants will never have sickle cell. He goes, wow, that's amazing. But then he says, but maybe it should be up to the kid after the kid's been born. They say, well, why would you want anybody to have sickle cell? He said, no, I don't want to have it. 
But it did teach me a lot. It taught me persistence. It taught me character. It taught me patience. And so even the 17-year-old David Sanchez in my book knows that there's a difference between editing the genes of a living patient who gives consent and editing unborn babies in a way that will affect all future generations. That's a pretty big line to cross. I think we should do it occasionally. There are certain diseases that are just so bad, like Huntington's and maybe sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs disease. And we say, why don't we edit these out of the human species? But as we do it, we should do it step by step because I don't want to go sliding down that slippery slope and say, well, let's edit, uh, make sure people aren't short or aren't fat. And then there's a blurry line between doing that and say, well, he's a normal height, but I want my kid to be six inches or eight inches taller. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think you start seeing the ethical question when you're not just doing something in a patient to cure a deadly disease or trying to eliminate a deadly disease from our species, which I think is legitimate. And instead you're doing it for enhancement uh, and you're doing it in a way that's inheritable, which I think crosses a line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the central quandary. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, take me back to my freshman philosophy and ethics course with Shelley Kagan and let's let's talk about this. So is it unethical to mess with what we don't understand? Or is it unethical to withhold treatment that we know we can offer? In other words, actually prevent those diseases uh, from going the germline uh, into future generations? I lean towards the latter, which is un it's unethical not to use things to alleviate human suffering and not to help uh, make people healthier. Uh, I do, you know, I do think that there's a lot of, you know, checkpoints you got to do, which is, is it informed consent? Are we really messing with things where there could be unintended consequences? Um, but, you know, if you felt real strongly that you should never mess with mother nature, you wouldn't be getting the coronavirus vaccine. You wouldn't be using penicillin. These are all things we found in nature and we repurpose as a tool to fight some of the things that are purely natural. Virus attacks are natural. So when people tell me, well, you know, we shouldn't be, it's unnatural to fight things like this. I say, no, every species does that. Every species uses all the tools that that species yeah. can muster to fight some of the bad things that happen in nature. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, this might be an interesting uh, comparison to what we see with the digital technology, which is itself also very powerful. You mentioned there's a slippery slope. There's a lot of gray. There are some red lines, but there are plenty of things that are not terribly clear. But um, And we have so much trouble with regulating these powerful tools of the, uh, of the digital world. At least they are reversible. With CRISPR, it seems... There's, there's really no taking back some of these changes. So I, I, I'll actually let one of, our, one of our audience members ask this question, which is really who gets to decide what we are allowed to do and not allowed to do? Who gets to decide what is right and wrong? How do we regulate this? 
Well, James Watson, the controversial character who wrote the double helix, said at one of the hearings, if scientists don't play God, who will? <laughs> and that sort of makes your head snap a bit. And I'll tell you who will. We all have to make, you know, these decisions. And by we, I mean, you know, you, Alexa, I mean, me, I mean, everybody listening. Uh, it's got to be something society decides, which is why I wrote the book, because I think, you know, it's good to have opinions about these things. Like it's fine to have opinions about GMOs in our food, but it actually helps to know what a genetically modified organism is if you're going to have such an opinion. And it's good to know what the yogurt makers discovered about CRISPR if you're going to uh, talk about genetic modification. So I want people to understand it so that we can engage in a social widespread discussion in which we say, these are the type of things we find would be awesome, would be wonderful. And these are the things that are shameful and we should stop. It'll be hard to stop some of them, but, you know, it's hard to stop a lot of things. It's hard to stop shoplifting or trading in elephant tux or sex trafficking or many things. But we decide what's right and wrong. And then we try to say and hear the guidelines that we're going to try to enforce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good point to remind ourselves how, how we deal with this in pretty much every other quarter of our life, and, and this may not be much different. I, I will uh, let, Let's take one more question from the audience, too, from uh, Utsav, uh, who asked something I think that relates to this, which is, um, obviously, there's a lot of interest in using this technology, a lot of good potential things that could be done. And Utsav asks, what's slowing down wider use of, of CRISPR today? Is it money, infrastructure, regulation, perhaps the ethical quandaries that we're not yet equipped to handle? Uh, what do you think is, is holding us back, Having this having been discovered a few years ago now? Well, the technology is pretty difficult. I said that the Chinese scientists did it for the twin babies at the end of 2018, but he made a mess of it. <laughs> you know, the babies were born with called what you would understand, Alexa, you know, mosaicism, mosaic, which means he edited the cells in the early stage embryo, but not every cell got edited. So he's, you know, so there's unintended consequences and there was a sloppiness to it. So the science isn't quite ready to get somewhat technical. The editing of the human genes is pretty easy. I went to Jennifer Doudna's lab and within two days I was editing human genes with the help of a couple of graduate students. Don't worry, we flushed them down the drain with chlorine. <laughs> They're not in the real world now. But what's difficult scientifically is the delivery system. And that's, by the way, true of mRNA vaccines. It's true of CRISPR edits which is we know how to do it in a test tube. The question is, how do you have a vector, a delivery system that gets them into the human cell, into the right human cells? And so that was done with sickle cell anemia because as you know, as a doctor, that's a pretty easy one. That's blood stem cells. And you know, anybody on this call can figure out, well, how do I you know, draw blood from a patient and then do it? Now imagine you're doing it for blindness, as we're about to be able to do, or it's in human trials at the moment. You know, editing the cells of an eye is a little bit harder than editing blood cells, which you can take out. Editing the cells of an embryo are really difficult, even though the Chinese scientists did it. So I think the scientific gating factor is the delivery system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things that work in the lab don't always work in the body. Yeah. 
Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, that you got to do some gene editing. Uh, I hope that you had very good pipetting technique. Um, pipetting was beautiful. <laughs> um, but in fact, if you have the book in front of you, the author picture, I think uh, my wife has said, if you look on the back flap of the uh, thing. Oh, there we go. Be playing with a pipette and trying to figure <laughs> out uh, how to do it. Uh, I, one of my uh, editors said, you know, I don't know how good the book is, but the author photo is pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually think that brings up an interesting angle on this, which is, I mean, to be sure, you're a very impressive and accomplished guy. But with respect to biotechnology, you're a regular guy. And yet here you were doing gene editing. Um, and so, um, you know, basically, how hard is this? And and can you imagine one day somebody doing this kind of work in their garage, kind of like the homebrew kids did in you know making computers in their garage? It's a good question, because as I said, a lot of science fiction is about things that have already happened. One of the characters in my book, who is sort of like the character of Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream, pops up every now and then to with sort of a uh, play the wise fool and say, what fools these mortals be, named Josiah Zayner. There are a couple chapters about him, both on the vaccines and editing, because, yeah, he runs a company called Odin, which may someday join uh, with you all in which in his garage, he makes CRISPR gene editing kits. So you can genetically edit a frog. And he even did something, which is a CRISPR edit uh, that takes myostatin, you know what that is, which regulates muscle growth. Mm -hmm. And if you suppress it, you'll get bigger muscles. And so he used it and shot himself in the arm. I mean, you know, uh, was able to inject himself with CRISPR-edited cells uh, that would, in theory, give him bigger muscle mass. Now, this is pretty recent. And no, he didn't keep doing it. He's not really become muscular. He's still a scrawny biohacker. You can see the picture in the book. But yeah, this is the type of thing that can be done in a garage. And as I said, the main issue is delivery mechanisms. You know, he sent me, he made using CRISPR, a DNA vaccine for COVID, not an RNA vaccine, but a DNA vaccine that would change the DNA in your cell so that you would make the spike protein and become immune. And he said he was, and I saw him, there's a picture of him in my book, actually, if you flip to it, I'm on a Zoom meeting with, he's injecting it into himself. And he sent it to me. You might guess, no, I didn't inject it to myself. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but you do have biohackers who are going to take this technology into their own hands. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with you. I wouldn't want to take that, vac that you know, DNA vaccine that he made in his garage. But at the same time, it was that very democratization of digital technology that led to this explosion over the last 30, 40 years of impact uh, of, you know, computers and the internet and smartphones and everything on all of us in all of our lives. Absolutely. So, you talked about the homebrew computer club. That's yeah. the exact same thing. The high, the hackers on the cyber frontier, same as the ones on the, the biohackers. And yeah, what they did at the homebrew computer club is they purloined copies of Bill Gates's, you know, basic for the Altair. And they were able to score, you know, Intel 8080 microchips and 
you know, the microprocessors that they could use. And they built their own computers. And, you know, Waz and Steve Jobs were there and they built the Apple II and showed it off at the homebrew club. So, yeah, you want citizen digital scientists and you want citizen life scientists that push the uh, human race forward. Yeah. yeah that doesn't mean I'm going to use uh, uh, Josiah Zayner's uh, vac- uh, homebrew vaccine, but mm-hmm. I am glad he exists. He's sort of a hero in the book, even though the scientists, you know, recoil. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think it seems almost inevitable for all of this to move out of the lab and into the garage, although it will only exacerbate the very ethical problems that we were just talking about. Uh, so yeah, I can't build an atom bomb in my garage or my garret. Uh, and, you know, you can probably keep that genie to some extent in a bottle. Uh, but if I can, like Josiah Zayner, do a lot of biohacking in my garage, it's going to be harder to regulate this technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you, do you worry, and there's a little bit of a, a detour here, but you did bring it up in the book as a nightmare of, of Doudna's. Do you see the CRISPR technology as potentially being weaponized and, and used in, you know, uh, not that, not someone like uh, the biohacker sort of making a mistake and not making the right thing, though he was trying to do the right thing, but someone actually using CRISPR in a way that will, you know, potentially be detrimental to to humanity in an offensive, purposeful way. Yeah. Do you know who the largest funder of Jennifer Doudna's uh, CRISPR research is, and at Harvard as well, is DARPA, the Defense Department. They're doing it to defend against bioterrorists. And I assume, although this is much more, uh, you know, classified, they're doing offensive weapons as well. They're finding ways, as Putin has tried to suggest in Russia, he suggested to a youth group using CRISPR to create soldiers that don't feel pain. And in Jennifer's lab, they're finding uses of CRISPR to make people less susceptible to radiation in case there's a nuclear attack. And yeah, not only could you weaponize CRISPR in order to do something edit humans. But one of the real worries you would have is that you could CRISPR edit mosquitoes and have gene drives. So it drove right through the whole mosquito population and have a weaponized mosquito. And by the way, when the coronavirus struck, there were people who suspected, and I'm, you know, think we have to keep this in mind, that those type of viruses could be engineered as weapons. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things the Defense Department is funding in Jennifer Doudna's lab is called anti-CRISPR. And you can mm-hmm. just imagine what that is. It's a system that tries to reverse or stop or halt a CRISPR technology. So like any weapons, we're going to have missiles and we're going to have uh, anti-ballistic missiles and then we're going to have anti-anti-ballistic missiles and we're going to do it with biology. Yeah, a bio arms race, as it were. Um, well, so let's um, let's uh, take another turn here and shift uh, shift gears. Um, we'll get to audience questions. We're getting a whole bunch now, uh, but keep keep them coming, and we'll come up to them in just a moment. Um, I want to talk about women in science. Um, Jennifer Doudna is uh, is the first woman to be a featured subject of one of your excellent biographies. Um, and in fact, many of the key players in the story of CRISPR were women. You mentioned Emmanuel Charpentier as well, and there were numerous others. 
And yet at the same time, only 10 women have ever won a Nobel Science Prize before uh, Doudna and Charpentier did. Um, and, and as you said, her, her Doudna's own um, uh, guidance counselor said, you know, girls don't become scientists. So, you know, how do you how do you think the story of, of Doudna is, is going to inspire uh, young women today to go into the sciences? Well, I hope it does. One reason, you know, we don't have diversity, we don't have gender diversity, racial diversity, whatever, is sometimes we lack role models. And until Jennifer Doudna read the double helix and discovered the character of Rosalind Franklin, who is actually kind of treated a bit dismissively in that book. But Jennifer said, I didn't care about how dismissively she was treated. I realized she was a great scientist and I could be one as well. So I hope my book is a role, you know, says it can be an inspiration. These characters can serve as a role model. Jillian Banfield, who, you know, helped develop CRISPR at Berkeley in bacteria from weird environments. She becomes a friend of Jennifer Doudna, introduces her to CRISPR. And then, as you say, Jennifer partners with Emmanuel Charpentier. So these are great role models for women in the life sciences. And I think that's great. I'm hoping, you know, maybe my book will be left on the bed of a daughter or a son because these people can be role models to say, you know, you can be a hero. You can put on the white lab coat and you can help make humanity better. Mm -hmm. um, I do worry that there's a lack of diversity racially and, uh, in fact, as I go around to the CRISPR and life sciences conferences, to be honest with you, um, I'm not quite as worried about gender diversity anymore. I've been to uh, gene editing and life sciences conferences where more than half the participants are women. But there are very few blacks at these conferences. And you're, you know, as you look around the companies you're working with, I worry that the digital revolution left a lot of society behind to some extent women, to some extent racial minorities. And we don't want that to happen in the biotech revolution, especially because there's a moral component mm -hmm. when you're dealing with our bodies and our populations to make you make sure you're inclusive in how you think it through. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and we've had such a great reminder this year of how unequal, um, how unequal the the world of medicine, the world of science can be, and how those are exacerbate, how those differences are exacerbated by, um, in an unintended way, of course, uh, but but still very much truly uh, felt. Um, to address that, I suppose I want to ask the question: You've you've profiled so many uh, really brilliant, successful innovators and scientists. If if a if a young if a young girl or um, or, or uh, you know, a, an aspiring uh, you know scientist came up to you and said, "Well, how do I become like them? What would you what would you counsel them to do? What do they have to be?" When I read the Double Helix when I was in middle school, just like Jennifer Dowd, I said, "Wow!" And I got really interested. I still have my first edition copy, which would be kind of valuable, except for it has all my you know marginal notes, defining words I didn't understand, like biochemistry. And if I had to do it all over again, I would have studied biology more. I think sometimes those of us who aren't, you know, uh, scientists, we've gotten intimidated by science, which is why I write the books that we do. So I think every person, young and old, should spend a little bit more time saying, hey, nature is beautiful. 
I'm going to try to be more curious about it. I'm going to try to understand it better. So I think, you know, not all of us can be Einstein with that mental processing power, but all of us can be just as curious as Einstein or Jennifer Doudna or Steve Jobs or Benjamin Franklin. And we just have to not outgrow our wonder years and remain curious. If we're going to get a vaccine, learn how it works. Figure out what is messenger RNA? Why are they calling that? What message does it carry? Where does it get that message? What gets it from the DNA and the nucleus of our cells? What is it a message to do? Well, it's a message to the protein-making equipment we have in the outer regions of all of our cells. And it tells them exactly which proteins to make. Well, that's not all that difficult, but we have to be curious. We have to always care about it. You know, one of the most amazing notes that Leonardo da Vinci left in the margins of one of his notebooks, it became like an inspiration for me, was describe the tongue of the woodpecker. Who <laughs> gets up in the morning and says, I need to know what a tongue of a woodpecker. I mean, how do you find out? You get a woodpecker and buy its mouth open? But that's Leonardo, always curious. He didn't need to know that. He could paint birds without knowing that. But you got to embrace your inner curiosity. Absolutely. Indulge that curiosity. Ask lots of questions. It's totally an exciting pursuit. And and actually, that comes to a question from one of our audience, I think, that um, uh, may help engender excitement about, about doing this work. Uh, this, this, uh, this person asked... Um, tell us about some, you mentioned that you did the gene editing in Doudna's lab, but maybe talk about some of the other interesting, cool research activities that you did for, for your book. What, what was exciting about learning about this, um, about this uh, field? Well, first of all, I like learning the history. And I know that's not something you'd necessarily do in a lab, but it's like, all right, everything I've written about all creativity is based on fundamental particles, whether it's the atom or the bit, you know, the binary digit that encodes digital information, or the gene. So I like to go back and say, how do they figure out what a gene was? Exactly what did Darwin notice about the beaks of the finches? Or what did Gregor Mendel figure out about the shapes of the peas he was breeding in uh, the monastery where he was a monk? And those are interesting stories. And so you can follow the stories through until they discover DNA and then the structure of DNA and then Jennifer does RNA because history is a narrative of change, how change happens, who resists it, who causes it. But then the other things I did in the lab were try to figure out molecules, which are really the building block of chemistry, but it's how chemistry becomes biology and how you take those molecules. And as you know from your you know, science studies, you can have a reporter molecule, something that if you chop it up, it glows. Mm-hmm. Well, what could you do if you had a reporter molecule? Me, I engineered one into a human cell, and then when we were able to edit the DNA, it glowed to show us we had done it. Well, likewise, I was thinking about what do we do with coronavirus? Well, if you have those type of reporter molecules that are attached to some of the genetic sequences of of the coronavirus, then when you have the coronavirus in your system and this thing chops it up, you'll see a signal. It'll glow. So these are not, you know, it's not like, as I say, Einstein, meaning 
rocket science, meaning general relativity. It's really, really a joy to understand how something works, especially when that something is yourself. Yeah, it's a, you, you experience, I, I suppose, what you could call almost a literal light bulb moment in the, exactly. in the lab. I think that, uh, you know, so much of so much of um, this, you know, curiosity new generation is about inspiration. We have a question here from someone who um, who mentioned who mentions there's an anonymous questioner. And let's see here. I said um, in the 1960s, the space program inspired young people to study science and math. So do you think CRISPR and the COVID pandemic are going to inspire more people to pursue science careers? And and if so, do you think that because this is what drew them in, the, the nature of innovation might be different going forward? Yes, I think this is the Sputnik moment for biology. Was in, you know, that Sputnik, when the Russians sent up the satellite, starts the space program and the space race. And likewise, the coronavirus crisis and CRISPR, the combination of CRISPR and COVID, makes this sort of the Sputnik moment for biology. And one simple thing that will change it, I'm just going to give one example, you all can relate to because you're in the fields of entrepreneurship that deal sometimes with digital technologies and in your case, medicine. We will get within the year home testing kits for COVID and for that matter for any virus. And a lot of them will be CRISPR based, which simply means There'll be something, you know, like the Amazon Echo that's sitting on your shelf or the iPhone that's sitting on, you know, the counter. And it's something where with a little bit of saliva or whatever, it'll test what viruses are in your system, what bacteria might be in your system, what bacteria might be in your gut microbiome, what tumor cells might be happening in your body. It'll be able to do a whole lot of that detection. So that will bring biology into our homes the way the personal computer brought digital technology into our home. And secondly, it'll act as a platform because once people had computers and once they had the iPhone, then entrepreneurs all over made apps, made applications that could be running on a personal computer or running on an iPhone. So once you get these home biology testing kits, People say, okay, I've developed a cartridge where you can test, you know, your blood sugar level. You can test, uh, as I say, your gut microbiome. You can test, I don't know, whatever you want to know might be happening in your body. And maybe people find ways to connect that to our wristwatches or connect it to our iPhones or make net social networks where you know, we'll be able to map and track the spread of a virus simply because of this. There'll be a lot of issues involved, privacy issues and everything else, but just like there are with the iPhone. And uh, so this is biology's moment where it's going to come home. And I hope, you know, we've seen a rise of 18% in the number of people this year applying to med school. And that's a super jump, right? Well, we're already seeing CRISPR and COVID have its impact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- you are right. This, I, I hope it is the, the, the Sputnik moment. It certainly appears to be w- sort of riffing on the fact that the moment drives the, um, drives the future. Um, w- here we are doing this conversation over Zoom. Everyone's been at home <laughs> working, uh, you know, for the last year. 
so much of the story that you told about CRISPR, so many of the key moments uh, happened because of sort of bumping of shoulders, as it were, you know, Jillian Banfield and, and, uh, and Jennifer Doudna being cross-campus colleagues at UC Berkeley and really bringing Doudna into the CRISPR world and numerous other stories like that. Um, how much does sort of informal in-person collaboration really, um, is, is it necessary or can we do it this way? Can we really change yeah. the way that we collaborate? It's necessary for innovation and it's necessary just as human beings. We're a social animal, as Aristotle told us. And I think as COVID is lifting, as you know, I know as soon as I was fully vaccinated, you know, I'm out every night talking to people, hanging around with people who've been vaccinated, going to restaurants again, because we need that sort of interaction. And man, I, there were times I was thinking if COVID doesn't kill me, Zoom is going to kill me. <laughs> because, you know, it was, you, you wanted those unplanned interactions. When Steve Jobs designed the Pixar headquarters and when he designed the Apple headquarters that he didn't live to see built, he made it so there were these central atriums and central places you had to walk through where you'd bump into people and you'd say, hey, what are you working on these days? And they'd say something and that serendipity would spark something just like when Jennifer Doudna goes to Puerto Rico and meets Emmanuel Charpentier and it's like, what are you working on? And it sparks something that ends with a Nobel Prize and a gene editing tool. So yeah, I think 10, 15, 20% of our interactions now will shift permanently to be virtual. We won't have to go to Friday afternoon meetings in the office necessarily. We'll work, you know, one day at home, four days in the office. But I know a lot of people, myself included, uh, you know, we're yearning to get back to campus. We're yearning to get back to the office because that's how we have those uh, serendipitous meetings and bull sessions. And yeah, you can get a lot done with a Zoom meeting and agenda, but it's hard to make new colleagues, come up with new ideas, to blue sky certain things, unless you're doing it with a real human interaction. Yeah, I, I certainly miss the serendipity and I, I can't wait to get back out in the real world and do anything with anyone, honestly. Yeah. Um, we have time for one more question from the audience before we wrap up. Um, this is a great one, actually, and I'm really interested in your answer. So you spent years researching this book, um, but what nugget were you forced to leave out? Uh, something that just didn't fit in the narrative and ended up on the on the cutting room floor. Can you give us the director's cut here? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, there were things when, you know, like if you're making a great sculpture, I think Michelangelo would say, chip away everything that's not the horse or whatever, as you're trying <laughs> to make the sculpture of the horse. Well, there were things I left out that I think were important, but weren't interesting to the narrative, a whole section of it, say, on agriculture. Mm -hmm. I mean, CRISPR is changing drastically uh, how we do agriculture. Now, I left in the yogurt makers because they're the ones who discovered how those bacteria fight off the viruses. But what I tried to do was to keep a central character. So a lot of what was left out were things that weren't part of the narrative involving Jennifer Dowd and her colleagues and her friends. And that's the thing about writing biography or narrative history is that you end up leaving things out because you're following a particular person or a particular narrative. And to me, that makes something 
more understandable. I mean, look, you know, we've been doing that since the Bible. You know, you start with Adam and Eve and then you go on, but, you know, you're, you're, you're leaving out most of the story. But I think that's the way we make things comprehensible is we go on a journey, a journey with a few people. We see things through their eyes. And so it meant when I wrote about Jennifer Doudna, I left out a lot about one of the most amazing and wonderful characters, Fong Chang, who was doing the same thing at MIT, or George Church, who were doing it at Harvard. And you look at my book, you see their pictures, and we see we have a chapter on each of them, but I'm not following all their research. I'm letting you do it through the eyes of Jennifer Doudna. To me, that's a great narrative technique but it means you leave on the cutting room floor other people like Fong Zhang or George Church who deserve to have movies and books about them as well. Mm-hmm. Well, so Walter, we've come to the end of our conversation, but truthfully, it seems like we're really just at the beginning of the CRISPR and biotech story. Um, uh, you know, uh, so many of your books have been a retrospective. This seems to be a, a preview. Um, and so I'll ask one final question. If you were going to write Codebreaker 2, the sequel, uh, coming soon to a theater near you, um, in a few words, what would be the storyline? It would be how we decided to use this technology. Look, all the other technologies I've written about, they kind of came upon us and we didn't really go hand in hand and figure out what we do. We dropped the atom bomb before we discussed, should we use atom bombs enough? Likewise, we created social networks without sort of thinking through what should be the etiquettes and the protocols on a Facebook or a Twitter uh, that we have in the real world. If you're in a coffee shop, there are things you can and you can't do or should or shouldn't do. I would like to make sure that we have this discussion about CRISPR as we're marching down this slope, because that'll make it less slippery if we do it hand in hand, step by step. And so the next book is not gonna be about the science, but about how we decided to use that science and whether we were wise enough to think it through before we barrel down the slope. Thanks for listening to Company Conversations. For more, visit us at companyventures.co or at Company Ventures on Twitter to stay up to date.